Looking for a workout program? Lucky for you, I know exactly who you should go to. 18 Alpha Fitness. That's at 18 Alpha Fitness on Instagram or 18alphafitness.com. Kevin Edgerton, owner-operator, not only has he been through the selection courses as a Green Beret, he's also picked up a whole bunch of medical credentials. And then on top of that, he's been a coach within the Air Force Spec Warfare Pipeline. And I've seen the results, and the, uh, the results are good. Very successful. So Kevin is that perfect merger of experience, both as student and as cadre. And he brings that together with the science. And he's always learning as much as he can. Uh, we've had him on the podcast. He'll tell you all about it. Um, so the flexibility, the breathing, uh, the strength, the conditioning, and not only will Kevin tell you what to do, but if you follow Kevin, what you'll realize very, very quickly is that he still lives that lifestyle. He's got an old gray beard and uh, I'm still scared of him. So head on over to 18 Alpha Fitness, use your ones ready code, get your discount and, uh, let Kevin help you achieve your goals. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. Uh, you just have me today. Um, Aaron is out on a trip and Trent is uh, still enjoying time with the family right now, now that his wife is back from deployment. Um, but we are joined today by, uh, I already told you beforehand, like this is pretty cool um, because there's only one of you really, but uh, retired Colonel Savino, uh, who was you know, the very first crow and, and one of the, um, say, pathfinders or even plank holders for the crow career field. So I appreciate you joining us today, sir. Hey, thanks, Peach. It was good. Glad, uh, glad for the invite and happy to share kind of, you know, the early beginnings of the crow career field and, you know, why we, why we are what we are and where we got, we went at least in the 10 years. And for me, amazing to see 22 years later where it's evolved to. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually, like, that's, that's great. You, you talk about 22 years. If you don't mind, um, just, you know, for our audience and, and for myself, really, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of your background? Because I, I would imagine it's, it's pretty colorful, especially after the amount of time that you, you put in uh, to the Air Force. Yeah, so I'll kind of just go through my Air Force history, if you will. So I graduated from the Air Force Academy in uh, 1986. And coming from a non-military family, really, um, my grandfather was kind of the impetus behind me going into the military. He was an Italian immigrant and immigrated when he was 17 and just loved our country and really was, you know, so patriotic, if, if you will. And that's kind of how I decided to go into the, into the military. But when I graduated, I went to pilot training right out of the academy, and that didn't work out so well, um, which is probably a good thing that I found out I couldn't fly an airplane in that respect, as opposed to, you know, 10 years later, on, ended up on a runway somewhere. But yeah, you're <laughs> a brand new second lieutenant, and that's what you think you want to do in life, and then it fails, right? And so I kind of tell that story a lot of times when I'm teaching, because we're all not just successful out of the blocks, right? We, we are where we are today, and I, I as a result of our failures and how, how we get there, you know, and, and in fact, when I interview a lot of people and they tell, you know, one of the questions you always ask, well, tell me the time you failed about something. And if a guy says, well, I've never failed at anything, you know, <laughs> you know I, I can whip out a handful of them right now <laughs> and tell you, but anyway, so the air force being the air force, um, and I had five year commitment from after 
graduated from the Air Force Academy, so I still had four and a half years. They said, you're going to become a missile launch officer. And I was like, wait, that wasn't on my, it was used to be called a Form 90. I don't know what it's called today, but it was like your dream sheet. So, you know, here I am, brand new second lieutenant, big ego. And even though I watched that, I'll, okay, I'll do this. So I look up all these jobs and like, oh, this will be cool. I'll do this. I'll do this. And so they come back and they're just like, no, you're going to be a, a missile launch officer. And you can imagine in 1987, six time frame, and coming from the academy, it was, was not looked upon very favorably, you know. So I'm like, okay, okay. So, you know, I go back, I go into our personnel office and start looking at all the jobs, missile launch jobs. So I find ground launch cruise missiles to Camiso, Italy. So I'm like, oh, that'd be cool at least. So they call me back the next day. And I said, okay, I want to go do Glickums in Camiso, Italy. And the, the dude, like, captain laughed at me. And he's like, Lieutenant, you don't understand how this game works. We got you for four and a half more years. You're going to ICBM Minuteman 3, and you're going to Grand Forks, North Dakota. So, you know, I'm like, I don't have a say in anything. No, you, you are ours for the next four years. So I was like, okay, right. So it ended up actually being pretty cool. Uh, you know, like everywhere you go, it's what you make of it, right? So I met Absolutely. a lot of good bunch of dudes, and we, we had a good time. But during that time frame, I kind of linked up with a, a couple of uh, buddies that had got into combat control. And one was Terry Mackey, and he was telling me about what he was doing. And I was like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. And I had no idea, you know. And it, it just wasn't very prevalently known at the time, you know, the, the special uh, combat control even power rescue anything. So I was like, that sounds, so I just started training for it, put in my package, got selected, went to the phase two um, down there at Pope. And that's where I met Kurt Buller and Terry Johnson, who you may know. And so those two guys were actually in my phase two class and Kurt was a cadet at the time. And so he, we got to be friends. And then uh, about a year later, when I went to the Indoc. Um, and here's kind of funny story. So I had missiles was a four year control tour, four years. And they wanted me to start the indoc in July. And that was a month before my four years, one month before the four years I showed up at Grand Forks. And they were like, no, you can't go. Like, what do you mean? I, I just passed this selection and I'm going to be a combat control officer. I'm like, nope, you have to wait. So now I ended up spending Four years, three months, and two days. Not that I counted every day, but yeah, four months, three years, and two days in Grand Forks before I went to the Indoc. So I showed up at the Indoc, and um, day one, I meet Kurt Buller again, and he had washed back from his class to my class, and so we we became roommates, and you know went through the went through the Indoc together, and then the whole pretty much the whole pipeline. I think the only class we didn't do together was uh, scuba school. He went to Panama City, I went to Key West. But then we linked back up and we all, Terry Johnson, myself, and we all graduated uh, combat control school together and then, you know, kind of went, went our separate ways. So my first assignment out of CCS was um, England. So I went to the 321st STS as a flight commander, did uh, two, two, two and a half years there, you know, doing all the rotations down to provide promise, down to San Vito, provide comfort. And in fact, that's where I met my wife and the reason I live in Italy today is I met her when uh, on, one of, on one of those 90 day deployments. We got married in San Rito. So 1994, I worked it out to where we had our team rotation. You know, the guys coming down and my team was going back. 
And so literally the whole squadron was at my wedding. It was, Jeez. as you can imagine, it was, it was ridiculous. I don't know if you with you <laughs> But a good one, but a good one, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it was, it was, it was hilarious. There are still, we got pictures and, you know, it was, it was a good time. And um, so after England, I went to soccer at, in Germany. And again, you know, for me, I was thinking, oh man, this is going to suck. I'm a captain. I just got, you know, combat control officer, got my first team, two and a half years. Now they're sending me to a staff. And again, it, you know, it, it's always, it's the thing as I always say is, you know, where you, where you stand on thing is determined by where you sit. So now that I'm sitting at the staff, I'm realizing some of the things that were going on at the 321st and why they happened. And, you know, me, you know, a year ago, I'm cursing the staff. Now I am the staff. And so it was interesting. But the, the good thing was I ended up uh, running a team at the headquarters, uh, the survey team, European survey uh, assessment team. So I had 11 SF guys from 10th, uh, from 10th group. I had three SEALs and two combat controllers from the 321st that kind of, the controllers were attached, they would come down, but the, and the SEALs came from unit two there, but they were assigned to underneath me as were the 11 SF guys. So it was like I was running a team again and we went all over Europe not to the nice places, but all the, the, the shit holes <laughs> doing, doing surveys to, for the session basically. But we would then put together the NEO packages for the embassy. And that's kind of how we got in and out. We traveled on black passports. I was really ended up being like probably one of the coolest three year assignments I had. Right. And, and so that was good. But then out of there, uh, I went to assessment, went to the 24th, got picked up and was the DO at the 24th for, was ADO and then and then the DO for three three years I think, and during that time frame was when kind of the whole crow thing started bubbling. And in fact, I remember the uh, the day Paul Miller, Chief Miller, was in Germ was at the Pentagon, and I had met him in Germany when he he was stationed in Germany um, at USAFE, and we had jumped it, so he would come and jump with the three twenty first. So I kind of knew him, and so he just kind of called me out of the blue, and he's like, "Hey, man." We're, we got this going on and we're interested in you coming on board. You know, we, because, you know, we've heard a lot of good things about you working with the PJs, basically. And, uh, you know, we, we want you to think about it. I'm like, what, what the hell are you even talking about? You know? <laughs> so I, I start looking things up and many, many, many long conversations with him, with my family, my wife, and, you know, some of the ST leadership and, um, it was it was it was really interesting seeing the the perspective because some people didn't they didn't want it to happen and you know I'm not going to mm-hmm. name any any names or anything but I mean I was called a traitor I was you know told you know don't don't do this you're you know as the DO at the two four you know you're pretty much like the number one major at the time you're mm-hmm. kind of on a certain path and like man you're going to throw it all away you're going to go be with the pilots and they're not going to take care of you and and I was like look. If you're going to do anything, and especially this, why not get in on the ground floor and make it the way, shape it the way you want it to be, as opposed to, you know, so we'll just wait a couple of years. This thing will die. And then if it goes okay, then then think about it. I'm like, no, if I'm going to do it. You're, like, you're going to go all in, right? So I said, okay, um, I'm in. And then <clears throat> kind of weird. They All of a sudden, I got orders to the Pentagon from the 2-4. I'm like, 
what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just dropped at it. So I called Paul Chief Miller at the time. I was like, Hey man, I just got orders to the Pentagon. He's like, no, that that's not going to happen. So basically, you know, this was chief of staff of the air force secretary of the air force level. So the next day my orders were canceled and I got orders to uh, go to Moody early. So I went to Moody and basically was the, uh, DOJ, they called it, I think, the Director of Operations for the PJs underneath the 41st Rescue Squadron while we worked on standing up the uh, the 38th Rescue Squadron. So it was me. Um, I was selected as the commander. Then there was Terry Johnson. He was selected as the DO. And then T.C. Phillips, who was a prior PJ, then an HH-60 pilot, was selected to go to the Pentagon. And so we were kind of the first three, if you will, that were there. And then we put together the phase two program and started building the squadrons and building the career, career field all, all at the same time. And uh, so, you know, the first was the 38th rescue squadron followed by, um, in my four years at, as the four years, three, three years at the 38th as the commander and did an extra year. So it was two plus one, three years. We stood up the 38th then the 58th. Then the 31st, and then I think just as I was leaving, the 48th Rescue Squadron stood up. So that was kind of, you know, the impetus behind the crew, whole crew thing. And meanwhile, we were running a phase two selection, trying to bring in the right officers, as well as what else happened? Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, you know, at the 38th, we we lost Jason Cunningham, Jason Plight, Mike Maltz who, you know, those kind of really hit the career field hard being the, you know, the first guys. And, um, you know, I knew John Chapman worked for me when I was the DO at the 24. So as you know, and where you are today, man, we lost a lot of dudes early on that kind of shaped, okay, we, we need to really look at taking care of the families and everything else as, as we go forward. But um, it was also, it was a good time. And I, I, I don't know if you, did you know Mike Maltz at all or? No, I knew of him, and obviously, you know, everybody that grabbed the uh, the trifold from from the yeah. recruiter, uh, you know, he was on the front. I mean, yeah. why would you not put him on the front? I mean, what a, he, yeah. he was a great recruiting tool, just, you know, chiseled look, good-looking dude. Yeah, everybody's like, I want to be that. It's like a sign in my wallet house right behind me, and uh, – it's it's our graduation picture from the end out. So it's me, Kurt Buller, and other got you know other enlisted guys that graduated. And uh, we didn't have a PJ graduate though. We we all all the guys that graduated our class were combat controllers. Yeah, the last PJ was washed out like a week a week prior, which is kind of strange. So we graduated eight, you know, out of what you know the hundred and something that started, but. They were all, now that I think about it, they were all, uh, they all were CCT guys. Dean Unger was in yeah. there. Chief Unger. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was in my class. Um, Hoss Cartwright, if you know Hoss, Mike Cartwright. Yeah. He, mm -hmm. he actually ended up being on the, the raid that when they got Saddam Hussein. So, really? yeah. Okay. That was pretty Man. cool when you go back and you look at the picture and go, this dude's now a chief. This guy's it, you know? But, yeah. But it, Mal it, it really was is. in there. And uh, so he used to come into my office literally every day at the 38th and he would grab the picture off my desk and he goes, damn, sir, I'm a good looking guy, ain't I? <laughs> you know? And that was, that was, that was just him. That was, that was his personality. 
Well, you can't blame him when he looks like that. Yeah. But, you know, you, you talked about the, um, I mean, I don't know if, if people, whether they're active duty or, you know, coming into the Air Force, but the undertaking that you guys did, standing up all of those squadrons, um, kind of revamping a little portions of the pipeline, portions of phase two, um, like that is just to stand up a squadron alone. Like one squadron just to stand that up is a is a significant undertaking. Like that that is a lot of of hours in the day, like a lot, a lot of long nights, a lot of bureaucracy in terms of making things work within the Air Force and yeah. making sure you have the the positions and the funding and the equipment and, and there's just so I mean the list keeps going and then you're standing up numerous squadrons at the same time. Like that is just, I mean, I'm glad I had no part of that. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. It was, it was, it was a steep learning curve, you know, especially, you know, coming from the two, four and going to the 38. So, you know, here I am at, you know, the, with the whole deepest, darkest black side where you get anything you want for, and then all of a sudden coming to big air force, big blue in a, unit that's brand new and then in acc you can imagine you know just like holy shit i gotta get my act together and figure all that stuff out and not just me but you know we and we had a really good team there at the 38th with me and terry and then uh, matt mcginnis was the first crow that came into the unit he was a prior pj um and then tc phillips was really smart on the the money side and so you know we were placed where we were placed for a reason and and it, it was it was and looking back at you know it, it was all the right thing to do and and we got along great too the three of us which made it made you know there were no egos involved it was like okay you're going to go this you're going to do that and you're going to do that and you know we we fought over some things early on but everybody had the you know the intention of the career field being successful and the squadron and doing the right things, you know, the end of the day for the operators, which were the PJs, you know, we wanted to make it do it the right way. Cause we knew it had failed before. And, you know, we, and that was a whole thing. We're like, Hey, we're not building PJ officers, you know? So you can imagine there was a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there was some animosity between some of the PJs even because especially the old time PJs, rescue PJs who were used to doing things a different way. And, you know, underneath the flying squadrons and, so, you know, we had to we had to wrestle through some personality issues as well. And, you know, not only appease our own, but appease the Air Force and then build, you know, and get the right guys in. And like anything, you don't always pick the right people you find out later. And, and but that, that's part of anything, you know, any assessment, you're always going to get some that come in and, you know, you look back, you go, yeah, we probably shouldn't have taken that guy. But. We, it was a necessity at the time because, yeah. you know, we had to bring guys in. We had, we had to build the career field too. So we had to prove to the Air Force that we were going to be, you know, successful standing up the squadrons. And, you know, that was one of the things, um, we did at Moody. Luckily we had some good funding and, um, some really good logistics guys that were PJs that knew the money system. Joel Lukens was one. He was just phenomenal. And, you know, so come the end of September, we would, we had like literally millions of dollars of equipment and forms ready to go for unfunded. And so when the unfunded list came down, everybody else is scrambling 
and our shit was tight and in within an hour. And so we ended up like the first year, I think, getting $5 million of unfunded that just boom, because, because we had everything going and, and we knew we were going to, you know, kind of be the premier squadron. So we made, and some guys initially like, why are you spending all this money on the floors and, you know, making things look nice? We need kit. I'm like, okay, trust me, you know, we're not going to get kit until this place looks good because this is going to be people are going to come through here, you know? So we had congressmen, we had generals, you know, and I said, if this place looks like crap, we're not going to get funding. So man, they came through and, you know, they were impressed. You know, we had, we had all the uh, air force cross recipients on the wall. We got all those paintings and, you know, we had the dinghies from the, the, the civilian rescues. I mean, the squadron was tight when, when we opened up on May 7th, you know, People came through and it looked like a professional squadron. And that, I think, helped us, obviously, in, in, in the long run. And then, you know, guys started seeing the money come in and then getting the Gucci Mountain hardware gear and everything else. But, you know, it was like, hey, we, we got it as a process and you got to do it this way. So, yeah, well, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. And, and I this kind of will lead into my next kind of question that I'd like you to run down. But, um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm old enough to remember because I, I, I went through NDOC as well. I, I'm old enough to remember us, you know, controllers and, uh, and PJs going through together. And then I went to the 21st where at the time we didn't have any uh, PJs. Um, and, and, you know, but we had special tactics officers. And, and so I'm like, okay, well, yeah, we have officers. And then to know that PJs were all enlisted and then they fell under, you know, pilots, you know, whether it's a uh, 60 pilots or HC-130 pilots, like, you know, they, they didn't have, they had their own command structure, but it was also someone else's command structure. Right. So what, w- there was probably always a, maybe not always a plan in place, but I mean, PJs had done it since Vietnam without having officers. So there was a lot, I do remember there was a lot of pushback on that. They're like, we've done so well before you know, since then, historically, so why do we need officers now? But what do you, what was it that helped the community or even you mentioned the CSAF um, recognize the requirement for crows? Uh, yeah, so that was the chief, the, the chief master sergeant PJs at the time, the ones who kind of had been fighting those battles as chiefs, but weren't getting anywhere, even as a chief, they realized, you know, like, hey, if we are going to be successful in the future, and Paul Miller was like the proponent, the visionary of this, like, we are going to have to have a colonel someday sitting at this desk that's going to be able to speak for us. But, and I don't mean like, I have to go, excuse me, sir, we got to take the colonel out in the hall now and let me, let me tell him what he's supposed to say <laughs> to, you know, he has to know the beans, the bullets, everything else, and what the requirements are. So that was kind of the, the emphasis. And th- there was a little back and forth, especially with, with Paul and I initially. You know, he's like, well, you know, I said, well, everything you have here is you have an administrative officer. I said, if that's what you want, you got you got the wrong guy. I said, because in order for me to sit at that table and talk about parachutes, talk about bullets, talk about guns, I have had to have been on missions where I needed to use that equipment. 
and with the guys that have used that equipment and taking care of them and see where we've had failures of that system to be able to speak intelligently about it. So that was kind of then, and he was like, okay, I got where you're coming from. So, you know, I was like, okay, be careful what you ask for, because this is what you're going to get. But the other side was that I knew that I had to tiptoe very carefully initially with, okay, we can't just throw guys in there and nothing against the Garden Reserve, but we had some problems initially because they just brought prior PJs and said, you're, you're an officer, you know, went through OTS and now you're an officer. But the mentality didn't change. So, you know, so they called them the, the Crow Jays. And, you know, so we had to, we had to fight. And not that the guys shouldn't have been on the missions, but they should have been on the missions in a different way. You know, the, the, the theory was we're never there to take a role of a PJ, just like uh, a ST officer isn't there to take the role of the combat controller. It's to enhance the mission and provide the C2 and make sure you guys can function and do your job. Yeah, can I give an IV? Yeah, if you ask me to, I can help you out, but I'm not a paramedic, nor do I need to be, right? Because I shouldn't be the guy on the ground doing that mission, you know? And one of the kind of the work, a couple of the first instances where I really saw that play out in the right way was one was the jump in um, Afghanistan when it was a bill sign and uh, three guys jumped into the minefield to save the SAS guy. And in fact, Jesse Fleener was on the ground with the SA, the Australian SAS team. And he told his team leaders like, look, we got these dudes flying overhead, PJs. And if you want to save your guy, we need to get them on the ground. And Moose Mavaginis was a lieutenant flying on the airplane and I give him the utmost credit that he did not jump. And I'm sure he was chomping at the bit to get it at yeah. the airplane. But his job was on the airplane to make sure the guys could jump. And if he had not been on that airplane, that C-130 pilot would not have called forward to allow our guys to jump. Because he was really, I don't know, you know, and it's dangerous. It was like, no, look, there's a guy dying. That's why we have, we're here on this mission. And so he was talking back to the JSRC and, you know, so he was doing all the coordination. So the guys were able to jump and, uh, yeah, unfortunately the, uh, the guy died, but that wasn't a result of us. It was a result of his injury, but it was, it kind of became what we called, okay, this is the classic mission. You got a guy in the ground, we got PJs, we insert them, whatever means, and they treat the wounded. Now the sixties come in refueled by another 130, pick them up and then take them to, you know, higher care. So it was just the, the way it functioned was, was perfect. And so then we were able to start kind of alleviating some of the fears with some of the senior uh, PJs that were kind of against having officers. So they started seeing the benefit of where we were going and okay, you know, and we kind of try to explain, you know, this, this is, this is still an infant. We're, we're molding it and, you know, we're going to see where it goes, but this is kind of our vision. Then we had another one. In fact, I was over in um, in Iraq, and I I was the commander, like the first commander non-flyer of all of CSAR. So I had the one thirties, the PJs, and the HA sixties underneath me in a squadron in in Iraq. And we sent guys out one day, and it was um, Captain. It was Chad Starr at the time, and he was on a dive mission with. They were going to recover uh, some sensitive items from an OH-53 that crashed into the Tigris-Euphrates, one of those rivers there. And um, 
he didn't, again, he didn't dive. He was on the ground with talking to that army commander and, you know, and the army commander being an army commander owns the turf and everything else. He was doing the coordination back to me. He called, he was like, Hey, sir, you know, they want us to stay here tonight. And I'm, I'm arguing with this guy. And, you know, so just his being there, even as a young captain was able to talk to this Lieutenant Colonel and, you know, like now, Sorry, we do not work for you. We work for, you know, we're getting our orders back here. And so we coordinated airlift to come and get them out of there because I was like, hey, the last thing we want to do is our guys in this area after dark, you know. So so that was another instance where they saw, okay, the crow was there, but, you know, he didn't put his wetsuit on and jump in the into the Tigris. He stayed on the boat and then was on the shore and made sure that we get what we needed, but that we got out of there at night because none of those guys wanted to stay there. So there are a couple of things like that were really kind of solidified that, okay, this is why the crow was created. And yeah, yeah, you know, and then, but from the other side, when we were recruiting guys, we said, look, you're in a tactical environment. I, I'll give you two examples right away where you are going to be on missions. And, you know, later on guys, there were, uh, I think a couple of crows jumped on the mountains in Afghanistan because they were needed to provide that C2 on the ground. And so as those missions evolved, it really kind of solidified why, we needed the, uh, you know, the, the crow to be part of it, you know, like, just like we needed an ST officer in, in the special tactics squadron. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because specifically about the, some crows did actually jump in because, you know, our, our demographic is anywhere between 15 and, and 35 year olds that are wanting to be CCT, SR, PJ, Stowe, Crow. And a lot of the questions that we get for, for stows and crows are, hey, am I actually going to be able to see combat? And uh, well, actually, right now at this point in time, like that's a question that we we get for all of the career fields. But right. um, but the, the answer is, if if there's conflict going on and you're a stow or a crow or you're wanting to be one, like yeah, there are chances for you to get on there. You just it's. It's knowing what your job and what your role is. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It, you, you know, you're still going to be trained to shoot, move, communicate, jump, dive, all that kind of stuff. You're still going to, as a as a flight commander, you're still going to go on training trips. You're still going to go on deployments and stuff like that. But your job is not to be that tactical, that tactician expert yes. in your in that specific craft. Can you? aid and can you be a shooter can you help out on that mission if required absolutely but your role is to you have many roles but one of them like like you mentioned sir was that kind of blocking and tackling in terms of you need to filter out because there are going to be people whether they're air force members they can be soldiers marines sailors that that they are the battle space commander or they are in charge of that area and they don't understand the one, what your mission is, your capability that you bring, what the requirement is. And if there's somebody, you know, just using the recovery of sensitive equipment or, or personnel, like we have to get in there to save this person. We have to get in there by this employment method in order to recover this person or these items. And because they don't live in that world, they don't understand it. And that stow or that crew is there to help not just lead the enlisted folks, but also, hey, this let me brief you and let me help you explain so that my folks can continue to do the mission that they need to do. Right, right. And it, it, 
and taking that even one step further is, so we put guys on staffs initially in lieu of putting them on teams, which they didn't appreciate that. Some, but we, you know, when we brought them on board, we talked to them like, Hey, man, you have just a huge acquisition background. You, we want you to be a crew. You're, we understand you're a lieutenant, you're a captain, but we're going to send you to a staff two years and then you'll get your team time. I promise you, you will, but we need your expertise right now because we need you to be able to write in the acquisition or write us into the war plans and everything else that's going on. So at least when it, tr- when it trickles down, you're included up front. So you don't have to fight uphill. You're now on a downhill battle, which is a, which is a lot easier, right? So, you know, we did that intentionally. And, and I think we, we did it the right way. Guys weren't happy about it, but looking back 22 years later to where the career field is, had we just built the teams and the squadrons with crows, we would have never got to where we wanted because we made money at the staff level as far as, you know, getting the right equipment, getting the right into the war plans. And then when, you know, the guardian angel became a weapon system, I mean, that wasn't done because of a tactical crew on the ground, right? I mean, that was done because of the knowledge of the guys that were at the air staff and ACC at the time that were able to put it all together and make it happen. And then you see the benefits of being a weapon system start playing out immediately, you know, like, holy shit, man, we're, we're now on par with that HH-60 or that 130 or that F-15. I mean, we are a weapon yeah. system. So No, 100%. And, I, and I, I love the fact that, like, because I subscribe to that way of thinking is, one, you'll probably never find somebody who's like, man, I love being a staff officer. <laughs> as, as somebody who was, because I was at Sox and Sock Year, uh, not, uh, not Sock Year, I was at SOCOM headquarters as well doing staff officer stuff. So like, I loved it. Love great assignment. Like it was actually more rewarding than I expected, but at the same time, I'm not like, man, I love doing this paperwork. Right. So but you see the necessity for it. Right. And, and that's it, why, like I, I've been a big proponent of, we need to plant seeds at SOCOM headquarters. We need to plant seeds at AFSOC, yep. all the TSOCs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we can plant the seed, plant little, and, and you're right, sir. It's, it's the right person. And yeah. they're, they, they're probably going to go kicking and screaming because it's like, man, I want to still shoot, move, communicate. I want to be on the teams. Mm-hmm. Like, look, we, we need the right person to go to this. And, and we may not see results immediately, but it, it will start to trickle down and, and almost infect, if you yeah. will. And, you know, the, the interesting, that point is, so like I told you, I went to soccer kicking and screaming. And what, when I was there during my three years, I ran the survey team and I made so much money for combat control just by being a combat controller, even though I was a captain at the staff and leading these guys and going, you know, I was a, the, the guy going to the embassy, speaking to the ambassador with a black passport and we're giving them war plans. And then I would come back and we would write them. And, you know, I kind of almost had a direct link to the general and, I remember the 720th commander coming over at the time and he visited and he's like, you need to get into J3 ops. And I'm like, sir, I would one uh, would hate life if I was in J3 ops, but two, <laughs> what am I going to do in J3 ops for the community and for special tactics? Look at what I'm doing here. I mean, we're getting, you know, so much more influence and recognition and 
no knowledge and as well as people are recognizing, hey, to do with the Red Beret and CCT, I mean, they're out, you know, guys who never knew what it was are now yeah. understanding what special tactics can do, and, you know, because I would, we would bring in. So, you know, I fought that like probably almost at a point of insubordination where, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, sir. And then, you know, he would leave and then. I would, I would never go to the J3 and, you know, talk to him about it. I would go to the J3. He's like, oh, how'd it go? Yeah, you know, my boss kind of wanted me to come and talk to you about coming into the J3 ops. And, but I, I really think, goes, no, 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 get back to the survey team. I'm like, Roger Hester, <laughs> you won't get any arguments from me. But, um, yeah, so, you know, going back to now, you know, the, after the 38th was, was an interesting time because, you know, now we got the four squadrons stood up and, I went to War College, so I did a year there at Maxwell, and uh, which was good. Kind of a, it, at least it was a good break, especially after that three years of you know constant deployments, both wars and everything else, standing up the career field, um, and then coming out of there uh, was interesting because I think I was the first guy in our class at War College to get a follow-on assignment, and again, it was just right place right time it was right after thanksgiving general brown who was the four-star socom commander and i worked for him at um he was the jsoc commander when i was the do at the 24th so he knew me and he had a soft dinner so all the soft officers got together and had a dinner and his aide was um uh, tom trask colonel trask who was my group commander a year prior so he knew me. So we were all talking. He's like, hey, we're, you know, we're standing up this new personnel recovery branch at SOCOM. And who better to stand it up than the Crow? So we want you to come to SOCOM. So I'm like, hey, all right. So like literally I had orders to SOCOM not even halfway through school. And that's like unheard of. So, you know, so it was really cool. So I knew I was going to SOCOM. I was going to stand up the personnel recovery branch um, again as a Crow in SOCOM headquarters now, you know, people are seeing an Air Force officer with a Maroon Beret and Lieutenant Colonel rank walking around going, who is this guy? What, what the, yeah. you know, so uh, again, you know, you're building that knowledge base with all the SF officers, with the SEALs, with the Rangers and everybody else. They start to understand what a crow is and what he can do and, and how he can do it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, for me, that was a great time on staff as well. And I really learned uh, you know, kind of the higher headquarters, if you will, being, being in 05. And then I actually, I got selected for 06 when I was at, um, at headquarters. So when I pinned on, they moved me out and they made me the deputy for um, J52. So I was in charge of policy and plans. So, you know, I was now dealing with the joint staff, the sec, sec def, and at the time was uh, Rumsfeld was the, uh, the secretary and so you know we call them the snowflakes he would just like send crap down and you know this is 2004 2005 2005 2008 so you know we're right in the height of both wars at this time and you know so he would send these down where they call them snowflakes because they were these memos that would come down to socom and we had literally would have like four hours to answer them so you know here i am scrambling writing all this stuff up and sending it back up to you know, the, the SOCOM commander, so he can then answer Rumsfeld snowflake. So it was really, it was interesting uh, perspective that 
years later was a, one of the reasons that we'll get into after where I went to work in the UAE, helping them write strategic level doctrine and policy. So, you know, everything kind of falls into place in your life, I guess, for different, for different reasons. But, um, out of SOCOM, I was, I was, um, myself and Pat Pahana and, you know, Pat, right? Yeah. yeah. So we were both selected to be ASOG commanders and, then we were, the next day, we were unselected to be ASOG commanders because we weren't rated pilots. And, you know, so again, so this, this was the second time in my life uh, where my name was at the chief of staff at the Air Force. The first was becoming the crow. Now it's, okay, this is chief of staff level now that Mike Longoria was fighting because he's like, no, you know, these guys have every right to be an ASOG commander, if not more right than... So a week later, we were ASOG commanders again. So I went out and I commanded the first ASOG out at Fort Lewis. And again, supposed to be there for two years. The day after, everything seemed to happen in my life after Thanksgiving for some reason. I, I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, the call came from Paul Miller the day after Thanksgiving. The got my orders to SOCOM the day after Thanksgiving. I get a call from 13th Air Force commander the day after Thanksgiving while I'm the first ASOG. He was my immediate boss. And he goes, okay, we've been fighting this, but um, you're, you're going to Iraq for a year as the MNCI first corps. Cause I worked, I was dual hatted. I was the first ASOG commander, but I was also first corps air liaison officer. So I had two hats on it again. You know, they're looking at what is the crow doing as an ALO, right? Like, well, I have a background because I was a CCT officer as well. So, you know, I understand air integration as do crows now and everything else. So why, why can't you be at that level? You know, I'm not the guy on the ground. I wasn't a JTAC. I'm not calling in airstrikes. I'm planning. Right. So, so another kind of impetus into getting crows out and into different places where they, they hadn't been before. Um, <clears throat> So General Jacoby, who was the first corps commander, had been talking to me like when I first got there, like, hey, you know, we're going to be going to Iraq next year and I'm going to be the MNCI commander. You're my ALO. You're coming over with me. And I was like, no, sir, that's not the way the Air Force works. You know, we go on six month deployments. You'll get me for six months. And then one of the other ASOG commanders. And he was like, no, you don't understand the way the world works, Colonel. <laughs> You know, so it's, it's kind of going back to that. You don't understand the way the, way the world works, Lieutenant. You're going to Grand Forks. You don't understand the, the, the way the world works, Colonel. You're going to Iraq for a year with me. And so this was now the third time. So he went to the chief of staff of the Army. Army chief of staff went to chief of staff of the Air Force and said, Savino is going to be the ALO for multinational corps Iraq for a year. Meanwhile, you're going to stand up the 368th Expeditionary Air Support Operations Group. So we had a bunch of dis, uh, what's the right word? Uh, not co-located, not uh, connected squadrons that were out there. Yeah. And so we brought them all underneath the three, created the 368th Expeditionary Air Support Operations Group. And they all, so basically all the TACPs and the combat weather guys now in theater belong to me instead of. You know, they, they were attached to the Army units with the squadrons. So everything, you know, kind of funneled through me, which, which worked out. So I went to Iraq for a year, um, kind of dual-hatted, and 
probably three quarters of the way through that, you know, as you know, in the Chiefs group, uh, everything goes through your assignments and everything goes through a different, a different venue. So I went through the Colonel's group and I was like, okay, well, you know, what, what's next for me? What, what do you guys, what's going on? They said, well, <clears throat> you're a Colonel. You were promoted early. You're kind of on this fast track now. So you have no big blue staff. So you're going to go to the Pentagon. I'm like, wow, man, I sidestepped the Pentagon twice already. I am not going to the Pentagon. And, and I probably would have gone if it wasn't the next sentence that was, but expect to only be there maybe eight to 10 months. And then you're going to go to Afghanistan because of your background and you're going to command over in Afghanistan for a year. And I was like, man, I, I'm done. I'm done. Cooked. Can't, I can't do it. So. I put I put in uh, I put in my retirement papers and was like you know if that's if that's what it's going to be and I kind of saw, saw the writing on the wall that man I'm just going to be hopping from theater to theater on year long assignments from now on I, I need to get my life back in order back home and and do some things so I put in my retirement paperwork and kind of another thing you know I keep going back to who you know and where you are at the right time well the um, 93rd AGAL commander was a classmate of mine at the Air Force Academy. So I knew him. So I called him up and was like, hey, hey, man, John Horner. And um, I was like, hey, I'm retiring in six months. And basically, I've got nowhere to go because I can't go back to Fort Lewis because I was the, the first ASOG commander. They already, they got another commander. You know, I, I left for a year. They can't send me back there. The Air Force doesn't know what to do with me, so I want to be proactive and tell them what they can do with me. Can you guys bring me to the 93rd AGAL, like a special projects officer? I'll work for you, you know, be your coffee boy, whatever you need me to do for six months. Because my wife, the reason I wanted to go back to Moody was when I went to um, Iraq for the year, my wife and my last son, who was at home, moved back to Valdosta, Georgia, because we had friends and we had a support system there. And my wife said, there's no way in hell you're leaving me on Fort Lewis with these army wives by myself for a year. <laughs> so so literally we had we packed the family up in June, drove all the way across. And I don't there's almost not two further bases you can drive active duty bases you can drive from than um, Tampa, Florida to Tacoma, Washington. And, yep. you know, we drove all the way across the country, <laughs> you know, with my wife in the van, me in my pickup truck, towing my Harley and the dogs and the kids. And we went to Washington only to be told, you know, four months after getting there, you're leaving for a year. And so we packed them back up and, you know, the Air Force paid for it because I was going on a one year assignment so I could move my family anywhere I want, which was nice. So packed the whole family up, drove back to Moody then or to at least Valdosta, where my wife had friends and my son had friends because he had gone to school there for three years. So it was just it's just one of those things. It's, it's comical to think about it now. And you, we laugh about it. Right. But at the time you're going, this this just makes no sense. If you would have told me four months ago when I got the first ASOG that I was only going to be here four months and then you're going to yeah. send me to Iraq, my probably my whole outlook would have changed. And we're okay, I got it. You know, you can, it's easier to deal with that than when you get blindsided in the middle of something. And like I said, you know, that really was the final straw for my wife too. She was like, you know, if we would have known this and you wouldn't have moved me all the way across the country, only to move back, you know, we probably could have done another few years. But at that point, it, we were both just toast, like I said. 
No, I, I, I get it. I, yeah, I don't blame them. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, so I, I talked to, um, so basically I went permissive TDY to Moody Air Force Base. And, you know, was, the Air Force was happy because they found something for me to do. They didn't have to pay me TDY. They, and they didn't, they couldn't PCS me there, but they just sent me permissive TDY, you know, and I had a house. And so it was good. So I went to work on Moody Air Force Base for my last six months, did my last jump with the 38th Rescue Squadron, which was awesome. So, you know, everything kind of, kind of came together there. And then I retired right there in, uh, in Valdosta and got a civilian job working as a senior executive, uh, for Target Corporation at one of their distribution centers. And, Man, that was not what I wanted to do. Let's put it. And, you know, it's funny because look, my wife was like, I told you, I told you, you weren't going to. I said, yeah, but, the, you know, it was kind of, and that became the impetus on why I became a career coach later was because I made so many mistakes getting out of the Air Force that, you know, after I went through the training and became a career coach and then started coaching people, especially you know, guys that were getting out of the Air Force, was like, like, I just, I just don't want you to make the same mistakes I had. Had I had somebody like me helping, it would have changed, you know, so many things. And, you know, so I, I went through two years of just hating life because we, we don't quit, right? No, I'm going to fix it. I'm, I'm going to keep forcing this square peg in this round hole. And, you know, at the end of the day, by brute force, it's going to be a cylinder someday. Well, no, it just, it just wasn't, wasn't working. You know, like I, I had these people dealing with hourly employees that don't want to come to work. They'd rather go hunting and fishing than show up to work. And I'm like, how are you taking care of your family? Then I had mid-level managers. I was, you know, since I was in charge of the whole warehouse, I had shift work. So, you know, I'm going in three o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. And I'm like, this is not the life I want to do. And so it's kind of a funny story. So the kicker was, we had to do this um, program, if you will. It was an offsite. And I had, uh, like a month prior, I took them through a whole strategic planning offsite. We did, you know, we created a vision and mission statement. And man, it was just, I was like, oh, this is great. And then, like two months later, we have this offsite and they called it, I think they called it connections, you know, that just rings a bell. So, anyway, it's all these senior manager. So I looked at the the way it worked in my military mind, it was it was an Air Force wing, right? So the um the general manager was the general. He had eight group staff, uh, eight group commanders. I was one of those group commanders. And then he had um you know ten five squadron commanders and then you know forty Crows, if you will, or pilots, whatever, and then 450 operators. Yeah, but it didn't. It didn't work that way. In my mind, it worked that way, but in that, in that way, it didn't work that way. So we're in a senior meeting offsite with, you know, in my mind, the eight colonels and the general, and the general manager starts out. Okay, you know, I just got back from headquarters, and we're going to do this uh, thing called connections, and we're going to get to know each other better. And he starts talking about growing up as, you know, he was a fat kid and people were picking on and he starts crying. And I'm like, it, it, literally, this is what I thought. There ain't no crying in baseball. 
no crying. You remember the the, the movie uh, with Tom Hanks? And it was like, there ain't no crying in baseball. So literally around the room, everybody starts telling these stories and just starts crying as it comes to me. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're good. man, I was like, yeah, I was born you know, this uh, son of Italian immigrant in Brooklyn and, you know, so I went through kind of my life story, but I was like, got out of there and, you know, told, you know, some of the things that affected me, but I was like, one, I'm not crying. And two, I'm not letting you, I'm not letting you in here. You're, you guys are not on that level with me yet, you know? So I got home and I told my wife and I was like, I can't do this because they wanted me to then do that with my eight managers. So do that same thing and offsite with them. And so I, I came home and I was like, Maria, they were crying. She was like, what? <laughs> so like, yeah, I put in my two week notice. I'm done. She's like, okay, but w- what are we going to do? Right. And um, so again, another buddy who was a, a SEAL master chief who I'd worked with out, um, when I was in the survey program, he worked for me and, really good dude. And he, we had stayed in touch and he just happened to send me this job announcement for writing strategic doctrine in Abu Dhabi. And they were looking for a senior soft guy to do it. I was like, hmm. so I applied for that and, and got that job and it was a nine month contract. So I went over to Abu Dhabi and, you know, wrote senior level doctrine for their special operations command, if you will. Um, then, was supposed to go back on another contract afterwards. So I came home to Valdosta and we had just built, you know, kind of our dream house. And you know, we had 10 acres of land. We had pool, we had two pond. It was really nice. And then our youngest son was now getting ready to go off to college in New York at St. John's. So it's just Maria and I, and I'm over in Abu Dhabi for eight months, getting ready to go back. And another, she's like, you know, what, what the hell are we doing in life here? Um, and two of the older boys were living in Italy and had recently got married. We had our first grandson. And like I said, I met my wife in Italy. So she's a dual citizen. And so she's like, let's sell the house. We'll go in Italy. If you're going to be doing this kind of stuff again, which is fine. And our youngest is off in college. I'm here in this great big house, beautiful in the country by myself. Then we're moving to Italy. So we put the house up. It sold in two weeks, which was incredible. And, and we moved to Italy. So, I took a year and a half off, which again was the best thing that I ever did at the right time because I never decompressed coming out of the coming out of the Air Force. I went literally I started working for Target while I was on terminal leave. And so, you know, I went right from the Air Force to working this kind of shift level, high level job, stressed and everything else. And I never we never had time to kind of focus on ourselves. So uh, you know, it was like, okay, we're taking some time off and I'm not doing anything. And we just enjoyed life together. And then, um, then it was like, okay, I got to go to work again. And another contact in the UAE said, hey, they're looking for some senior military advisors to this new Joint Aviation Command. They need to put together a combat search and rescue capability. So you came to mind. I was like, hey, okay. So I applied, got the job, went over there and, um, Stayed there for four years, going back and forth to Italy. Um, my wife came over at one point for six months and stayed. But again, you know, so kind of coming towards the end of the four years, 
start reassessing your, you know, you're getting older life, you got kids, grandkids, and like, man, do I really want to be doing this? And like, or do I have to be doing this, right? I don't have to be doing it anymore. You know, I got my 06 retirement, I got some disability coming. And so like, you know, I've been writing resumes and helping guys transition. Why don't I get paid for this? And so I, I, I took a course and became a, uh, a certified professional career coach and resume writer. And so I just started doing that. And then again, by chance, I, Kurt Buller and I, we, we've been friends forever. I, call, I saw what he was doing with Intrepid and I called him up not to join Intrepid, but to find out how to stand up a business because I had no idea. But I wanted, right. you know, I'm creating my own business. So I called Bull and I, hey, Bull, man, talk, talk me through. How, how do I, how do I become an LLC? Why do I do this? You know, and so we spent, you know, hours on the phone over a couple of weeks. And he's like, hey, man, I'm trying to expand my company. And would you be interested in, in, in joining? He says, I got a class out in Aviano at the 57th Rescue Squadron. I'll, I'll pay for you to come up. And, you know, just sit in on it, see one, see if you like what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Yeah. And you can give me some good feedback. And then if you like it, you know, we'll talk about, you know, you coming on board and help me out because I want to expand and I'm getting more on the mission planning side. I got guys who can do that, but I really don't trust anybody else to teach my leader course than you. And he goes, in fact, you're going to see I talk about you in my leader course. And I'm like, oh, nice. And uh, <laughs> you're the only one that I would trust to teach this as as the leader that that i am so it was kind of cool in a way but then so i started working with him and you know i still got my my own business and so i travel maybe four or five times a year with intrepid now and you know help him uh, you know so now we we've expanded into the combat mission support side as well and that's what i'm doing next month out at nellis i did one um in the fall out, out here in tucson in fact i was out here i did a combined 306 um 48th what's the other 68th rescue squadron here combined mm -hmm. mission support so i had like 30 guys and uh just happened to be in conjunction with the pj reunion so that worked out nice and um so i, I taught a four four day leader development seminar to mission support which i think is important and they're again now that the squadrons are starting to see that and you know you you don't get anywhere without support right no. so now the, the support side is seeing, hey, man, they're invested in us. So now they're going to be more bought into the mission and, you know, understand what we're doing. And when, but at the same time, they're getting professional development that they see the PJs and the controllers getting. But now they're having the time invested in them, which I think is important. And they're, they're starting to see some of the benefits of that as well. So No, 100%. That's where I am, actually... man. And that's my story, and I'm, and I'm sticking to it. That's fine. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> I actually messaged uh, Colonel Buller, um, I don't know, about two weeks ago to have him on because yeah. I, I just happened to run into him at the at the gate at Herbie. I, yeah. I was there for a, a roundtable discussion and just happened to run into him at the gate. And I was like, hey, man, when are you going to come on? He goes, hey, when am I going to get the invite? I was yeah. like, okay, cool. I, I got you. So, <laughs> Touche. Um, yeah. Got my bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I told him once I get settled here in Dallas, because for everybody that is watching or listening, like I have two fold up tables right here and I'm on a camping chair, which is why I've been moving around. Like, right. So much, Cause it's not right. very comfortable, but, um, 
Well, sir, I really appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you giving the background on, on kind of where our combat rescue officers come from and your background, uh, as colorful as it, it is. And we didn't even hit on it. So I, I, I'd like to have you back on at another point, whenever it's convenient for you. Um, but cause I definitely want to hear some of these, some of the stories yeah. on, um, you know, you getting read your rights and all that kind of stuff and stealing a boat. Yeah, there, there, there um, are some good stories in there that we, we we'll, like you said, yeah. it'll, it'll take a whole other podcast to get into those. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we definitely. realized that yeah. we realized that with, uh, we, we had Chief Lampy on, um, and we've recorded one episode with him and we, it was like, all right, we got to get you back on because it's just, it's incredible to hear the things that our, our aspect war, Air Force Special Warfare folks have done in the past. I, mm-hmm. It really is. And, you know, you, it's funny because you're, you're, um, some of the names that you've brought up during this, I mean, just, you know, with, with Plight, Cunningham, Maltz, um, Lukens, it, it just, there's, some of these people have done some incredible things and, I'm going to pay the ultimate sacrifice, yep. and and then you know we still have people out there who are just getting after it. And I, I think it's important to highlight, and that's you know this podcast is one of the ways that we try and do that. Like, yeah, we want to, um, you know, help future PJCT SR attackees and stuff like that, and you know become what they want to do. But at the same time, it's it's also capturing what our folks have done past so and you've you've helped with that today and i definitely want to invite you to come back on so for everybody that's out there yeah absolutely so everybody's out there listening and watching please like subscribe leave us a review please comment and we'll do our best to get back with you so uh best of luck out there train